This is Shannon Morgan, and you are listening to episode 12 of Sound Mind, a place to openly discuss the struggles in our minds, including mental health, trauma, addiction, and more. I'm not a counselor, and the podcast is not meant to replace professional therapy, more like somewhere you can go to find connection and learn how other people's experiences can aid in your own journey. Speaking of which, I work in the field of behavioral health as a peer and youth support specialist. Working with both adults and children, I share my lived experience with mental health, trauma, and addiction in order to connect with clients and help them see that they are not alone. Helping them to share their own story, set goals, build hope, and live more self-directed, purpose-filled lives. And that is the spirit I'm bringing to the show. The website for Sound Mind is soundmindpodcast.com. There you will find social networks, learn more about guests, and where you can leave comments or send me an email. And I would love to hear from you, especially if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you have a reaction to an episode. Now, on to today's guest. Melissa Bradshaw Lamar firmly believes that everyone deserves respect and a voice no matter what they struggle with, and that we can change the narrative of stigmatized conditions and rally around loved ones to to provide them with much-needed love and support, replacing shame with love and understanding. While earning a Master's of Arts in Communication at Boise State University, Melissa studied how dialogue, a communication theory which requires inclusion, openness, listening, and a suspension of judgment in our interactions, can overcome a dangerous effect of stigma in our community and relationships. Through writing her thesis, Melissa discovered tangible ways families can connect and support their loved ones who struggle with addiction through vulnerability, transparency, openness, and love which Melissa used to help her own daughter overcome challenges with opioid addiction. And with that, let's meet Melissa. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hi, Shannon. I'm great. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Awesome. I am excited to talk to you. Um, You and your daughter, Rachel, who I'm going to interview in another podcast are both in recovery, you for your mental health and your daughter for opioid addiction. And because of your experiences, you have a very powerful message that you want to share about stigma and recovery. Um, But in order to get there and to get a better understanding of how you view recovery, I thought we could talk a little bit about your journey to understand where you come from. How does that sound? That sounds great. Okay, can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and your formative years? Yeah, I I grew up in a tiny little rural town. Um, I think the population in the town was about 200. Um, the entire school from kindergarten to senior year was less than 200 students, so very tight-knit community. I grew up in um, an LDS church, and everybody was like family, which is you know, I felt like everybody was a grandma or grandpa, aunt or uncle or cousin town. So very sheltered, very um, tight knit and very ill prepared for life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, The home life was hard, you know, um, I grew up in a big family, so financial resources were kind of tight, and knowing that, just having that sense of um, limitations, I guess you could say, and just feeling, having a feeling of, of being poor, growing up in a big household, you didn't, I didn't ask for things like, I want to go on a ski trip, or you know, I, I want something big or extravagant. I just knew that that was something you couldn't do. And so just having that sense of, um, that I was a poor kid 
was something I kind of grew up with. And so I think that kind of helped or kind of contributed to depression, feeling like I can't really do anything. I can't go anywhere. It would be great with my life because I'm just a little girl in a podunk town um, that doesn't have any money or resources. And I had big dreams and I, you know, was pretty talented little girl actually with my imagination and stories and poetry and drawing, but I just didn't ever think that anything could come of that because of where I came from. Mm-hmm. And my mom was unbelievably young. I was her fourth child and when she was 21. And so she was pretty ill-equipped to be a, a parent. And so the discipline was swift and harsh and you did what I say and you didn't question it. You know, with seven kids, she had to get a lot of things done, I think. And so there just wasn't any option to argue or discuss because I think she just didn't want to have seven arguments with seven kids. It was do as mm-hmm. I say. Um, so my dad tells us, has told a story that um, when I was a toddler, he spanked me harder. I was acting up in church, I guess, and he took me outside and said he spanked me longer, longer and harder than he had spanked any of the kids. And from that day on, all he had to say was, Lissa, and I would suck it up, you know, no matter what I was upset about, cried about. So I, I really didn't feel like I could ever express how I felt, my disappointments or those kinds of things. It was just do as I say. Um, again, with my mom, you know, we were out in public. She told you to do something. You didn't do it. You'd get the cross-eyed look. And then if you didn't, <laughs> still didn't do it after the glare, you know, you got slapped across the face. It didn't matter where you were, who you were, who you were around, who you were with. And so that was pretty embarrassing and, and degrading, felt degrading. You know, there was a lot of mm-hmm. love and hugs and kisses and a lot of fun family times too. I hate to just paint this picture that it was all um, brutal, but we had a lot of fun family outings. My dad was really good about taking us to the mountains and playing with us. And we had a, a lot of really fun times as a child as well, but um, I just didn't feel like I could ever voice what I wanted. There was also a lot of criticism in my family. So if I said I wanted to grow up and be a poet or I wanted to draw or be an artist, you know, that, that would have been silly. That wouldn't have paid the bills. What are you thinking? You've got to go do something tangible, which I'm sure a lot of parents do. They want you to be safe and be able to provide for yourself. Um, but when I turned 18, I met my husband, who was 32 at the time, and he was going through a divorce and had two kids. So my family, I was actually pretty religious. I was a pretty good girl. I followed the rules. And so when I met my husband, I fell madly in love with him um, and married him right away. And my family thought I had lost my mind to go from this Christian, very naive child to I'm dating a 32 year old man. Mm -hmm. Freaking out just a little bit, but it ended up working out. We've been together for now 32 years. Wow. That's a long, healthy marriage. Yeah. I wouldn't say long and healthy, but long marriage. (laughs) It's It's a regular marriage. There's ups and downs. (laughs) There you go. There you go. It, it has been, it has been a journey. We, we 
we went through a lot with each other, but now we are pretty good. We're, we've worked through a lot. We've gone through a lot of marriage counseling, a lot of personal counseling. Um, we went through recovery together. Um, I learned how to actually deal with my depression and find healthy ways to cope instead of just checking out and climbing in bed and sleeping for hours on end. Mm-hmm. But so we have a lovely marriage now. It's, it's wonderful. Growing up um, in a in a small like religious community, did you find yourself? Um, I've, I've I've talked to other folks that they struggle with perfectionism a lot, where they want to be perfect because everybody's all interconnected. Does that make sense? Definitely. It's- yeah, I I definitely struggled with perfectionism, but I think a lot of that was also fear. You know, if, mm-hmm. because I grew up in a pretty critical, well, even a small town is critical. I mean, everybody's judging. <laughs> everything that you do, it has that feel. That may not be true. It may not be accurate. People probably went home and didn't think another thing about me. But when it's so small and you, you do something that you're not proud of and it gets around the town, mm-hmm. like, then it just has that feel that, oh my goodness, everybody knows what I'm doing. And so you do want to be perfect. But also my family was pretty critical. We also teased each other a lot And even though that might've been trying to be fun and ingest, it still took a toll on your, your self-esteem, you know? So Mm -hmm. I, for years would not finish a project. It made my husband crazy. You know, I would make, I mean, it could be a snowman craft. And I, I got down to the very end that all I had to do was glue on a nose and paint his face and I would quit. And my husband could not understand that. And I, but I just thought if it isn't perfect, actually what kept me from drawing on the face was if I paint this face on and it's, it doesn't turn out, the face is ruined. And he just, it just boggled his mind. He could not understand how I couldn't finish. Mm-hmm. So after going through Celebrate Recovery, um, I, be, I went through one year and then I became a leader. Can you explain what Celebrate Recovery is? Because I didn't know what that was before I talked to you. You bet. Um, Celebrate Recovery is a 12-step program. Um, Eight principles and 12 steps through um, Mm -hmm. the Christian faith. Um, Jesus Christ is the center instead of like AA where you find that higher power with Celebrate Mm -hmm. Recovery. Jesus Christ is defined as the higher power. Okay. I worked through the steps. I actually had no intention of working through the steps. No matter how many times people said it's not just for drugs and alcohol, I heard it's for drugs and alcohol. And I went to support someone else. And as we were reading through the principles, I was like, oh, those are nice. That could be applied in anybody's life. But when I went and everybody was so welcoming and loving, I'm like, whoa, 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 don't get used to me. I'm not staying. I'm not one of you. And Mm -hmm you know, I ended up staying and <laughs> ended up very much being one of them and falling in love with women. I, I had so many beautiful friendships that developed going through that program and just found a, oh, these feelings of sisterhood with, with um, women that I had, I had never been able to have friends before in the past. I couldn't trust anybody enough to have a really good friend. I might have somebody that's kind of a pretty good friend for a while, but then, you know, I didn't want them to get to know me too much because I was ashamed of some of the, some of my past decisions or whatever. And, um, 
I didn't I just want anybody to get me to to know me too well. If you knew me too well, you wouldn't like me. So I'll just mm-hmm. put the kibosh on that friendship. But after I worked through the Celebrate Recovery, I held nothing back. I bared my soul. And I had women in my class that just looked at me with complete love and adoration. And I thought, you know, truly know me, my deepest, darkest secrets. And you are sitting here looking at me in such a loving way that I realized then that this is what I want in my life. I want transparency. I want vulnerability. Because Mm -hmm. if you don't let that go, you can't have those deep, meaningful relationships. And so I developed very wonderful, meaningful relationships. I, I haven't been involved in Celebrate Recovery for several years, but after I got involved, it just awoke something in me that thought I am more than this. I have gifts and talents and things to offer the world. I am going back to school And so I went back to get my bachelor's degree and did very, very well. And then I, um, some professors encouraged me to apply for a master's, which, you know, coming from that small home, that small town, critical environment, I thought, there's no way, there's no way. Who am I to go to a master's school? But um, BSU only accepts the communication department anyway. They only accept about 10 students. They only accepted 10. And I got in and to me, that was miraculous. I had, I just, I couldn't believe it. I didn't believe that I could be that good or talented. And even when teachers would say, you need to publish this paper, I'd be like, oh, you're just saying that to be nice and could not believe in my skills, had that imposter syndrome really bad. Yeah. So then I got my master's and then I just have been blossoming ever since going, what else? There's this message has to get out to people that are living in these shells that are afraid to be themselves when really they're the most beautiful people ever, but they don't feel it. And so that's probably the most joyful thing about recovery for me is to help people find out how beautiful they truly are. Let's go back a little bit and talk about your recovery process. You were uh, diagnosed with depression um, or was it anxiety and depression? Well, I had anxiety, but I never got treated for anxiety, but I just was diagnosed with depression. Okay. What, What was that like for you to live with depression? It was really hard. It was really debilitating. So if anything became too much for me to like handle too, too hard for me, I just wanted to go to sleep. I was, I felt like I had narcolepsy, you know, where you just, Mm -hmm. it would get too hard. Boom. I just, I'd want to go to sleep. And so I feel really bad that a big chunk of my children's lives, like, you know, if financial problems came upon us and I, when I was growing up, we were pretty broken. We had a lot of bill collectors call and they would scream at us to put our parents on the phone. And of course our parents didn't want to talk to them and couldn't talk to them, couldn't pay them. And so they didn't want to talk to them. So the abuse that we endured from the bill collectors was really hard. And so I grew Mm -hmm. up with a lot of anger that my parents didn't help shield me from that. So when my husband and I went through a really rough time when they had the housing market, the bubble popped, everything. We were Mm -hmm. just dying. We had a house payment that was too big for us. And um, I had bill collectors calling and 
but I took the calls. <laughs> I did know that I wanted to take the calls, but what I couldn't tell the bill collectors was when I could pay them because I didn't have a clue. I'm like, I'm trying to keep a roof over my children's head, keep the lights on, put food on the table. And that's all I can do. And I don't know when I can pay you. But I did tell them, I said, I will keep talking to you. I just cannot give you a date of when I can pay you. But I hated my, that about my childhood so much that I did not want my kids to go through that. So the fact that I put them through that, there was so much guilt and shame and such a sense of failure. So I slept a lot and just to check out and so my daughter, there's actually a video of my daughter walking past my door, whispering, mom's taking a nap, you know, and every time we get to that in home videos, my heart just aches because I slept mm. a lot. And so I just wasn't available for them, I don't think. And, but I just, I, that was the only way I could cope. I went through that too when I had a um, depression. Well, yeah, still when I get depression, I have bipolar disorder and it just, sometimes it just hits me and I just want to sleep all the time. And it feels like my body's made out of lead. Like yeah. just raising my arm is, yeah. takes so much effort and eating food takes effort. And I just don't want, I'll lay in bed and have to use the restroom and just <laughs> not just lay there for as long as I possibly can <laughs> before I get out of bed. So I don't know if that's what you experienced, but that's what it's like for me. You know, I, it was pretty, it was, pr it was right up there I had to get up and feed them obviously I would get up and make sure that they fed. yeah but yes feeling like I was a lead weight and so I would go get on antidepressants but they contributed to that sleepy and I'm like I need something to help me not be so sleepy so mm -hmm. these, the antidepressants were so frustrating to me because they they a sub excuse me a side effect can be yawning I'm like I already yawn mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't need any help yawning more so I was very frustrated with the antidepressants that I could not find one that didn't make me feel more awake, which is what I wanted. And I remember one time my kids were fighting. They were pretty little. They were probably like four and six. I remember watching them fight and I didn't care. And I thought, yeah. this isn't good. <laughs> so I, I went back to the doctor and I said, this isn't going to work. I can't, I have to care. I have to, I have to be there for my kids. So I didn't, I didn't like antidepressants. I never could take them for very long because I get pretty frustrated with them. So mostly I just tried to find ways to cope on my own. Mm -hmm. And at what point, because your daughter Rachel is in her recovery for opioid addiction, at what point did that journey start for you? So that started in her 20s. Um, actually, uh, did a thesis on opioid addiction in uh, families or children because a lot of research talks to parents about prevention but it doesn't talk to them what do you do when you have an, a child that's an addict there's very little research mm -hmm. that tells you tangible things to do so you hear this often talk to your kids about drugs talk to your kids about drugs and I and I think that's working because drug use among high school students is on the decline but drug use in a young adults in their 20s is on the increase which is no surprise given the economy exactly. and them not being able to find jobs and their only like outlet or only a available path is to rack, rack up a bunch of debt and at school and i mean it's pretty depressing i have an 18 year old son and i'm always trying to motivate him but it's so hard because there's i mean he's right there's really no opportunities right now 
and it's hard for the this generation of, of young people right. um way harder than it was for me i was able to find summer jobs with no no problem i had three or four of them it wasn't an issue mm-hmm. if i wanted one but my daughter can't find one and my son's having trouble finding a job and it's just really really depressing agreed and the cost of living is so astronomical the cost of yeah. transportation <laughs> is astronomical and the even the salaries are not keeping up with the cost of inflation you know no so even if they do get jobs it's still really really difficult to pay for everything mm-hmm. so you just look at watch tv and there's no way you can keep up with that kind of living you know but i know it's ridiculous <laughs> but you, i'm like i can't even afford that and i make a pretty good pretty good living but um just to watch the what where the bar is and that the kids cannot meet it. And if they do have to live back with their parents, there's so much embarrassment. Like I can't get my stuff together and live on my own. Mm -hmm. So she actually was living in LA at the time. Um, She had an an addiction to opiates, which I should let her tell her story. But um, when she went to LA, they were like, you know, heroin's so much cheaper than (laughs) opiates. Yeah. or the pills. And so that was a very helpful transition for her. Um, But I was very naive. Again, nothing, nothing in my life prepared me to be the parent of an opioid addict. I, like I said, was, you know, my, my mom actually says all the time, Melissa was a very sweet child. She was a sweet teenager and she's a sweet woman. And that very much became part of my identity, that codependent identity that I am such a sweet person. So, mm-hmm. you know, I always try to keep that persona and that identity up. So um, she asked me, she called me one time and said, do you know what a methadone clinic is? And I said, yes, because they used to laugh at the things that I didn't know. You know, like, oh, mom, you're so little. You just, that little town mentality and that very, sharp yeah, naive. <laughs> very naive. And I hated it. I hated that they thought I was naive because mm-hmm. I wanted to be the mom that, had it together that could help them. So I hated it when I felt naive. And so I lied and I said, yes, I, I know what it is. And she said, well, I've, I've been going to one every day. And she said, and I need to come home and I need to get some help. And so I'm like, of course, come home. I knew she was in trouble, but of course had no clue what. Cause even, do you know what a methadone clinic was? I didn't. And just, I don't know what I thought. I, it, I write that in my thesis. I honestly do not know what I thought her problem was as I, cause she was very good about inviting me to her doctor's appointments. When she came home to get help, I found her, I helped her find a physician. We started seeing them and she would talk to them and we were probably, I don't know, about four or five visits in when a doctor said, what were you using? And she's listing some stuff off. And then I hear her say black tar tar heroin. And I'm like, what? what and she's like mom yeah where the hell have you been all this time and um just so felt pretty dumb you know just felt like a really dumb mom and so that was really hard so i did again not knowing what to do what what do you do when you have an addict especially when life has not prepared you for that i started to treat her like she was in high school you know i'm going to take away your car you're you know you're grounded <laughs> for life. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah, that's not going to work. Um, so I, I went to work. I worked for an insurance company. I worked in, a, in a, the department where there was a lot of healthcare professionals. And I went into work the next day, like a whirlwind, help me, help me, help me. And, it, and most of them were going, you need, to, you need to put her inpatient. 
well, again, there was that embarrassment that I couldn't afford inpatient. There was no way I could afford to put her in an inpatient setting. So that reinforcement again of I'm a failure. I failed my children financially. I failed them that I can't give them the resources that I didn't feel like I had. And so Mm -hmm. that was, there was a lot of sadness, a lot of depression in that time. But um, I just kept, you know, and then as I put myself out there telling people my daughter is an opiate addict, then there was scrutiny of, well, what did you do? What did you do to cause it? You know, didn't you teach your kids to say no to drugs was practically their attitude, you know? Yeah. People act like parenting is a formula. And if you just follow this formula, your kids are going to turn out. And if you didn't follow the formula and your kids don't turn out, you had to have done something wrong. Yeah. You're talking your thesis about some people saying that she needs more Jesus and other people <laughs> saying she, she needs less Jesus. And you're like, and here in the middle, like I'm doing the best I can. Right. <laughs> like, I, I was, and I, I just, I was floundering. I didn't know how to help her. And you know, used every manipulative arsenal and every manipulative piece I had in my arsenal, like crying to manipulate her. If she sees her mom is sad enough, she'll stop using. If I was, you know, had a rage, a fit of rage, then I could rage the addiction out of her. You know, it just, I, I didn't have any positive, healthy outlet to approach my daughter. And I, we did not Mm -hmm. do conflict well when I was growing up. So of course I did not teach my kids how to do conflict. And so there's a lot in my thesis. I also talk about how parents know they need to confront their kids about drugs, but if they confront their kids, their demons are going to come back up. You know, you hurt me. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's things that the parent is going to have to face or the parent used in their past. They don't want to bring that up. They don't want to talk about it. Or they don't want to confront their child because they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to, you know, they're afraid that their child's going to be pushed away. So there's this really anxiety-ridden dynamic to talking to your kids about their drug use. So, of course, you know, I, I, I did screw up as a parent. I did hurt my children. I did hurt my daughter. Um, I was lucky in that I got to, I really didn't want us to be a hitting family I did not like to be slapped. So I did get to stop the, the physical abuse when I raised my kids, but I didn't stop the emotional and um, mental abuse. There was mm-hmm. a lot of raging, a lot of screaming because I didn't want to hit them and I wanted them to listen to me. So there was a lot of still that unhealthy conflict household. Um, but I did get to stop the physical abuse. So I, we, we joke that I did, my mom did better than her mom. I did better than my mom. And now my daughter can do better than me. Mm-hmm. So now we do conflict well. So I learned how to do conflict, but um, taught her some, taught, taught her a tool. But that was the thing that was the most frustrating was as I was running around tr- legitimately just trying to get help. I totally opened my life up for scrutiny. I opened Rachel's life up for scrutiny. And I and the advice that I got was just not helpful. It was, she needs to do the 12 steps. Well, I had done the 12 steps. I tried to talk her into doing the 12 steps. She didn't, she didn't want a religious, she wanted some treatment, but she didn't want the religious aspect. And I, I couldn't do inpatient. 
And so then it, we were just seen as a deviant. She was seen as a deviant child. We were, there's a thing called courtesy uh, stigma where the family members are seen as, as deviant. So family just kind of started to fall away. Um, friends started to lose friends and family. And especially when people would say, you need to kick her out. And I'd say, I can't do that. Yeah. It didn't make sense to me that I would abandon my child in her darkest hour of need. That just did not make sense to me. And so when I refused to kick her out, then it's like, well, then you're an enabler. You don't want her to get better. So we can't help you. And so your support just starts to crumble and fall away. Yeah, that must have been awful. I try to imagine um, my daughter has mental health problems. It's not the same as um, opioid addiction, but it's some of the same advice about tough love. You know, you're just not doing it right. And you just need to be harder on her. You need to take things away from her. You need to, you know, there's all of this advice. that doesn't make any sense to me, I mean, but she's got a mental health condition, you know, like right. she, it's the same thing with, with um, drug addiction. You know, it's not a choice at a certain point. It's an addiction. Um, for for Rachel at least, and for Zoe, it was a mental health condition, and it's just those those kinds of feedback aren't helpful, and they cause you to get further stigmatized, and you want, you're looking around looking for some hope, for some light, and there's not that much there, so you've got to just dig deep right. inside and and pull it out of yourself, and and pray you have enough for you and for for your kid. Right. And Rachel had a lot of depression as well, and um, mm-hmm. suicidal ideations, and so. When people are like, she needs to pay for her own car insurance. I'm like, well, I'm just trying to convince her to stay on the planet. You know, I, mm-hmm. so yeah. if I tell her you have to pay for your own, own car insurance, she's just not going to have car insurance. So some of those things that the expectations they had of me and her, it, I was like, that's, you have to know your child's capabilities. And it was, she wasn't capable of it. And then it, then that's where you just, well, you're enabling her, you're enabling this lazy behavior or she's, you know, just lazy, doesn't want to. I remember someone said to me, you know, my parents made it very clear I was going to be a contributing member to society. And I, I wanted so badly to slap my head in sarcasm and go, ah, I forgot to teach her that lesson. You know, (laughs) what was that? (laughs) It's like, what do you guys think? You know, it's, you do the best you can as a parent and parents make mistakes. My parents made mistakes, but I didn't grow up to be an opiate addict. So it is what I wish people understood and what I wish I had understood from the very beginning that addiction is a brain disorder. It is not mm-hmm. a deviant behavior. It's not an immoral choice. It's not that they're flawed or weak. It truly is a brain disorder. And so I, I wish I would have understood that it would have helped me cope with Rachel better. Just even to see when she would have sobriety and relapse, I would get so frustrated because I'd be like, why did you relapse? You know, what we were doing so good, (laughs) but understanding that addiction is, is a brain disorder and everyone has Mm -hmm. a different brain. And I actually got in a horrible bike accident when I was a little girl and was on opiates since I was eight. And because I had to have so much bone reconstruction surgery and got a bone infection and it was just excruciating. But as soon as I, I reached a point that I felt good enough that I didn't want to take it, I would switch to Advil. And then I, cause I hated how they made me feel. I hated feeling nauseous. I just hated them. So I couldn't wait to stop taking them. Whereas 
addicts that I interviewed during my seeking my degree, as soon as they took it, they felt like they were home. They said this was the biggest, warmest hug, and it was what I had been missing my whole life. So they had a very different reaction to taking the medication than I did. So it really is just a difference of the type of brain that we have. So what, at what point did you start, did it click? Um, you talk in your thesis about uh, dialogue versus stigma mm -hmm. um, and how you talk to your daughter. At what point did you come to the realization that, oh, this is a different path that I can take that's working? So I actually did a paper on e-bile and what it is is um, women that ever post anything remotely political or feminist on uh, social media get brutally, brutally, violently attacked in online. And it's, it's yeah. universal across the world. When they compared the sexual assaults or the, the description of sexual assaults to, on these women, they found that it was pretty similar worldwide. And it, it's just, it's very violent, very gruesome. So I was studying dialogue theory as I was reviewing this data and dialogue encourages openness. It requires a suspension of judgment. It requires talking and connecting with someone and their experiences to find something new, to create something completely new and just be open to their experiences because their experiences may be very different than yours. Obviously, mm -hmm. men and women have very different experiences in life. So, um, Rachel had relapsed right as I'm finishing up my paper on dialogue. And I was so angry because we had been doing really well. I felt like we were connecting. Um, we were doing so good and she relapsed and I was, it felt a little bit like a betrayal, you know, like you have done this to me. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so dumb looking back, but um, when she came home, I screamed at her so hard, just wanting to scream the addiction out of her, you know, just, I, I can't remember what I said. I'm sure I said, I'm probably, I'm sure I said, I'm going to kick you out. I, you know, just, I was just, I raged. And as she walked away from me, everything about her body language was so sad. She just looked so tiny she looked like Tigger that had lost his balance is what I, I describe mm -hmm. it at the end of the movie when Tigger can't bounce anymore. And he walks away with his little slumped shoulders down and she had her little slumped shoulders down. And I thought, she thinks she's a piece of shit. And you just enforced, reinforced that she's a piece of shit. After you just wrote this paper about dialogue and being open and suspending judgment and being open to our experiences. And I was so disappointed in myself, mostly. And so the next morning I went to her and I apologized. And I said, why didn't you tell me you were struggling? And she said, I don't know. I don't know why I can't tell you. She goes, because I always feel better when you find out. And so we kind of talked about what would it look like if, what would I look like if you could safely come to me? What would a safe environment look like for you be, to be able to come talk to me? So I started asking questions, you know, just really talking through and of, of course, profusely apologized for reacting the way that I did. Cause I thought, 
it isn't about me. She isn't doing this to me. She isn't doing this to hurt me. In fact, she would really very much like to not hurt me. She would very much like to make me proud, which she does. She has one of the most beautiful hearts of anyone I know. So I thought there's no way she would do this on purpose. So then I started to ask safe questions, you know, like, what would it look like for you to be able to come to me? What would you like me to be, do for you that could help you? What can I, what resources can we have at home? You know, just try to ask very different questions from her. So we, we would have, I called them stigma days and dialogue days. And my stigma days might be where I'm starting to set expectations like it's time for you to get a job it's time for you to do this it's time for you to do that where are you going who are you going to be with what time are you going to be back trying to have that control um and maybe withholding things from her like i'm not going to put gas in your car if you know you're just going to drive around and you know whatever however it is um those little things that can just annoy you as a parent to dialogue days of no matter what you choose to do you deserve to be treated with the utmost respect so in dialogue they treat it they talk about treating a person as an i it what can you do for me what do you do for me versus an i thou whereas you are your own godly being that is deserving of just complete deserving to be treated in the highest regard and with the utmost respect mm -hmm. so that's kind of how i shifted it's rachel is no longer my property my child my a reflection of me what can you do for me make me feel good as a mom um you know because if my kids were good then i was a good mom if my kids were bad i was a bad mom so it was this such an identity crisis for me so i wanted her to be good <laughs> so we looked good mm -hmm. <laughs> you know but suspending that judgment with dialogue is, drugs are neither good nor bad you know that we stop thinking in binary terms a good kid a bad kid good behavior bad behavior rachel is a beautiful person with unbelievable talents and a beautiful heart and is an opiate addict that is one facet of her identity and when you tell people I have an opiate addict for a child, then she is an opiate addict only. She is now an it and them and other. But I'd be like, no, she's a really beautiful person, really beautiful woman, and I really love her. And she happens to have this trait. So trying to think of, wrap your brain around that, separate the I it with the I thou was life-changing. And when, I sat down and approached this dialogue theory with her of tell me how I can provide a safe space for you. Tell me how we, you would, what the ideal version of me would be to help you feel safe, to get some help. Then she was able to respond with, you know, she would listen to me and my experiences of how hard this was for me to, when she would leave for an evening, wondering, am I going to get a call from the police officer that they found her you know, in her car, you know, she was, there's, I think it's called the act of reciprocity, which is also a theory that if you treat someone with the utmost respect, they will reciprocate and treat you with the utmost respect. 
And I started to see that where Rachel was also then curious, well, what can I do to help you not feel so scared? You know, and, and we started to work through those conversations, but that could not have happened if we hadn't, hadn't approached with dialogue. That's wonderful. That's really good information for people to have. Speaking of which, you are in the process of working on providing folks an opportunity to learn how to do what you're talking about. Is that right? It is. I, I just started working with a production company this morning. We're, we're starting to work on um, breaking down some modules, helping parents understand what addiction is. You know, when I used to take my kids to a pediatrician, you'd get a little handout about, here's your immunization. This is what side effects or you know this is what you can expect at this stage and when I went to all of her appointments about addiction it would have been really nice if I would have had a handout that said here's what addiction is you know I, I remember I asked mm -hmm. one of her doctors what can I do to help her and he said oh you're probably a little codependent but I'm okay with that and I remember being so angry that that was not helpful and that felt very patronizing I was legitimately mm -hmm. needing to know and then just it took me years to understand what addiction truly was and researching um, talking to addicts themselves to truly understand what addiction was and just a simple letter or just a simple sheet from the doctors helping us understand what addiction is would be helpful so I, I want to have a module on what it is addiction and then I want to have a module on what is stigma you know stigma is very dangerous it's not I, I honestly thought it was just some rude behavior so when I brought that into my thesis I thought I'd just kind of do a paper about how we get rejected, but it is so much more than that. It is a complete loss of resources. It is loss of shelter. It is loss of food and water. It is a loss of support. And research shows that a probability, our probability raises with a strong support system. So kicking a child out, kicking someone out, or kicking anybody out for any stigmatized reason is not helpful. And they can only get better by support. So I'd like to talk about stigma. It's not just rude behavior. It is actually very dangerous. Their lives depend on it and they are removed from society. They need basic resources to live and without those resources, if they can't live, they're certainly not going to get sober. So to teach what stigma is, it's, it's, and understand that it's a social construct that our society came up with. So we can change the narrative. And there's media has a big portrayal on how we see health issues in society. So, I mean, if you, if you, if I say heroin addict, what is your image? Um, someone shooting up in a really <laughs> dirty hotel room and right. Yeah. But they're poor people. Right. You never see a, you never see a TV show about a wealthy person shooting up heroin. So <laughs> there's liars, there's doctors, there's nurses, there's, all kinds of people struggle with opiate addicts. And so they, mm -hmm. media picks the very worst of the worst. But media can also put a challenge message with health issues. So cancer, breast cancer, especially, especially they use words like survivor and we're gonna find a cure and we'll fight for a cure. And so there's this challenge of, that everyone should join together, join this fight and overcome this obstacle. And we can change that narrative with addiction and mental health issues that we can rally around this person and we can help them. We can rise up and they can be survivors. 
It doesn't have to be this nasty, dirty thing where they need to hide and be ashamed. And so I want to help parents change that narrative. These are our babies. These are our children that continually get arrested when that's not the source of the problem. We're arresting, we're not holding the pharmaceutical companies accountable. We're not looking at the social system that is not allowing them to work or feeling like failures or school, maybe more counseling where children can learn their worth and self-esteem. So there's so many more um, variables to the drug problem than just our kids using drugs, not saying no. So to try to, to enter into a dialogue where we're actually looking at the problem on the side well, for instance, my daughter, I remember the night I yelled at her and I was thinking about dialogue theory, I remember having this visual of, I am not going to look at her anymore. I'm going to come alongside her and we are going to look at addiction together. I'm not going to look at her as the problem anymore. We're going to look at mm -hmm. addiction and we are going to solve this problem together. And so once I started to take that approach, it's like, we're going to fight this together and I'm going to come alongside you, with you, and we'll, we'll figure this out. And that made a huge difference. And then of course, you know, self-care with parents is unbelievably important. And I remember people saying, don't forget to take care of yourself. And I'm like, my daughter's shooting up heroin and you want me to get a massage? Yeah. You know, that self-care was seemed insulting but I didn't understand what that meant and so teaching parents about how to talk to their kids give them a tool to approach the conflict it's very scary most of us don't do conflict well so giving them some tools to approach the conflict telling them how to talk to their kids because when people used to say talk to your kids I'm like I am what do you want me to say that I haven't already said or so we don't mm -hmm. we really don't know how to talk to our kids. And so there's just so many things I learned along the way, learned the hard way and a very long road. It was an eight year journey that I just had these epiphanies along the way that I thought, man, I wish I would have known that. I wish I would have known that eight years ago. So if I can impart this wisdom on other parents, I I'm hopeful just to give them another tool in their arsenal you know maybe i am completely wrong and completely off base but at least i'm starting a dialogue about this issue because there's just not enough research from the parents perspective it definitely feels like you're on the right path i'm i'm really excited for what you're doing and i mean when you have it done let me know and we'll we'll get it on the podcast and put it on the website and do whatever we can to help people find it because it's it, right now it's so, so important the opioid um, addiction is just out of control in this country. It's really insidious and, I'm, and we have to do something about it. Agreed. And, I, and I'm worried that with COVID, it's overshadowed and with people not being able to mm -hmm. work and feelings of despair, I, I don't doubt that it's, it's on the rise again. Well, for the families who need it, they, I mean, I want them to know this is going to be something coming out soon. Oh, not soon. I'm not sure when. Actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't rush you, but. <laughs> I hope soon. I'm working on it. I, you know, my goal, my goal was a year, but I, I would love to have it done less than that. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we, we're just starting the script today. We, my thesis really is written. I just need to put it in a, a logical, tangible order for parents and um, so grateful so grateful that it worked out for my daughter and I and it, this may not be a one-size-fits-all with everyone but at least if they learn 
how to dialogue with their kids, they can find the right treatment for them and, and be that support because they need it. They just need it. Absolutely. Well, do you have any advice for parents going out? Um, anything you would tell them uh, if they're helping a parent, uh, one of their kids with addiction? I would. Um, one of the first things I did was I went and got help for me first. So when you're on an airplane and they say parents put on your mask and then put it on your kids, I went out and faced my demons first because I knew that there were things that had hurt Rachel that I needed to make amends for. And because my self-esteem was lacking, I knew that if we talked about some of her hurts, even if I hadn't um, caused the pain, I still felt at like a failure, like I didn't protect her somehow, you know, that I didn't do my job mm -hmm. and she got hurt enough that she needed to self-medicate. So I, it was a really scary, scary, horrible decision, not horrible decision, but a very scary decision in that I took my focus off of her for a minute, gave her a big hug. I love you with every ounce of my being and I'm going to go get healthy because I thought I cannot lead my daughter to health if I am not healthy. So I started to pursue my own health so that I could turn to her and go, health is great. Come with me. And I felt like mm -hmm. it was a huge gamble. I was honestly afraid that she wouldn't live long enough to follow me to health. But I felt so strongly that it was really important. And by pursuing my own health, pursuing my own self-esteem, pursuing my full potential, she became really proud of me. I started to gain credibility. I was able to make amends with her. We were able to talk about some of the past hurts. You know, I remember her one time she said, do you remember you handled this situation really poorly? And I said, I do. I am so sorry. I go, how do you wish I would have handled that? And I let her tell me. And then I said, I wish I had done that too and gave her a big hug. And we were able to just, you know, I was safely allowing her to express her anger and disappointment at those times I wasn't there for her and then could safely validate those feelings and emotions and, and build our relationship. So what a gift getting self-help. It, it, it is scary and it's every, it goes against every ounce of your being to save your child first, but it made a huge difference for us. That's amazing. Well, we're all out of time, but thank you for coming on the show. And I will definitely keep people informed with updates about your program. So don't be a stranger. Awesome. Thank you, Shannon. So enjoyed being with you. Thank you. You're very welcome. You have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.